This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web at theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at SociAnnex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're very excited to talk to Christina Mora from UC Berkeley. Christina is the author of Making Hispanics, How Activists, Bureaucrats, and Media Constructed New Americans. With the University of Chicago Press, Christina is an expert on politics, race, and immigration, and we're really excited to talk to her. How's it going, guys? Oh, it's going. Going. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> it was a very 2016-2017 answer. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to, to kick off uh, with something that I saw last Friday. I read on uh, a post on Org Theory that reminded me of a really interesting and I think a really important discussion that was happening among sociologists earlier this summer. The blog talks about a tweet from uh, Endicott college sociologist Josh McCabe, who tweeted a screenshot of then-candidate and now ASA President Mary Romero's campaign platform, which uh, spoke of sociologists not being able to shield ourselves with false notions of objectivity, but rather to maintain an organization that embraces scholar activism. Do you guys remember seeing that? Yeah. Well, I was, yeah, I mean, if you go back to the original, I, I'm friends with Josh, and if you go back to the original tweet, you'll see that, like, all the replies are mine, just me, like, <laughs> set me off. It was huge. I couldn't stop myself either. It's something that I feel really strongly about, and we were talking about it on our uh, on our department listserv. How do you guys feel about this notion of objectivity and activism in sociology? Well, uh, I'm going to jump in. Um, so, number one, uh you know, to her point, I actually think that there's something to be said for recognizing that, you know, even though like the vast majority of us in our work um, at, would actually like to at least strive for objectivity, understanding that, you know, whatever, it's like this sort of asymptotic relationship, right? You mm-hmm. never actually quite get there, mm-hmm. right? So as a discipline, when we come out and we claim that our research is totally 100% objective, I actually think is misleading, number one. Um, number two, um, you know, uh, we had, you know, a divorce. I can't remember when it was in the fifties or the sixties when people decided to veer off of being part of ASA to start triple SP because they believed that, you know, sociology, right, as a discipline should actually be concerned with changing the world. And, you know, and that's why we have triple SP. Um, at the same time, I, I don't think that we should have one organization where scholar activism is frowned down upon, right? Mm. Uh, and, and so everyone else who's engaged in that kind of work, you know, must go to triple SP. I'm a member of both, um, because I believe in both approaches towards, um, towards research. But I mean, that's my long answer. It's not just that is objectivity strivable, it's also the way sort of the argument of objectivity has been used historically, right? Yeah. So you think of uh, structural functionalism, if you think of the loads of research on, I mean, in sociology and much more broadly in the social sciences, it's often been used, and especially all that research on culture, right? 
uh, I think it's often been used in ways that create damage on certain marginalized communities. Uh, it's not just can we get there, it's the way the politics of objectivity is. And I think even if you just look in the history of statistics, we know that in the places where the argument of objectivity has been used, there's all kinds of biases that start from our assumptions uh, that then sort of uh, influence the way we think of what's objective or not. So I, I kind of agree with Leslie with the first part, but disagree with the implication. So I, I, I hear and completely agree with what you're saying about um, nobody's ever completely objective and objectivity is something we approach asymptotically. But just because you don't reach a limit doesn't mean you shouldn't strive for it. I mean, I, I view I that agree. as like saying I'm never going to drive completely safely, so I might as well just, you know, have a bottle of Jack Daniels in the driver's seat <laughs> and, you know, uh, swerve all over the road. And and then I say, and then you're like, why are you doing that? And it's like, well, I'm never going to drive perfectly. It's impossible to follow all the traffic laws. And it's like, yeah, but if you try, you'll get a lot closer uh, than if you just say to hell with it. Um, and then re related to this, I, I view it. There's an interesting thing there in that I, I hear you you guys saying, like, should we push against um, people who have kind of a praxis orientation? Um, and, you know, and I, I think of it almost in the opposite way in that should we view that as normative or somewhat compulsory or definitely as an organizational mission for the ASA, uh -huh. which ever since the Iraq War resolution, it increasingly has. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I draw a distinction between what I want the ASA as an institution to do and what I think individual scholars uh, should do. And my, my basic bottom line is, is that I think individual scholars should be able to do what they want, although I certainly hope that they will draw a distinction between what they know kind of ex cathedra, speaking as an expert. And I think we should be somewhat humble in what we're saying, speaking ex cathedra, limited to things that we actually do know and not just opinions we happen to have. Um, but I also think that people should be totally free to have whatever opinions they have. And if they kind of integrate that and their opinions are informed, or at least the implications of their, their opinions are informed by their expertise, and that's great. Um, but I, I, I'm really uncomfortable with like the ASA actively pushing that and having this mentality of it for every sparrow that falls, the ASA council has to issue a resolution, which honestly... 90% of them don't reflect either the expert findings of the discipline mm -hmm. or the professional interests of the discipline, quad discipline, but just reflect the, um, the political opinions of the median member of the ASA. Moreover, like, I, I, I wonder, when you start uh, presenting the issue of objectivity as something that is unachievable or false, and I agree with Gabriel, it's something that you strive for, even if you can't fully obtain it, I feel like if you are not like the the quest for objective knowledge uh, leads us to improve and develop new new types of perspectives, and if if you are uh, if you are guided by a, a normative view from the beginning, well, then there might you might be pushed into a situation where you're ignoring new evidence or evidence that might disconfirm the uh, you know the ideas that you had going into a research, and it might actually squash our ability to develop new findings. Well, so, you know, I'm going to jump in here because I actually think that I was the first one who said strive for objectivity. Mm. I do believe in the quest for objectivity. I question whether or not any of us are actually able to get there 100%. And so when some of us claim, right, 
we claim that our work is totally objective and we point fingers at other people and say, but not that one, Hmm. right? I think we need to sort of pause for a second and think about the ways in which even those of us who actually say, I'm striving for objectivity here. We need to think about the ways in which, you know what, these are some of the ways in which sort of my no, my sort of normative views may have creeped into here, whether it's in terms of how I decide to frame a question, how I decide to operationalize, you know, a variable, how I decide to actually like analyze uh, my findings, right? Um, at the same time, there are actually researchers who don't claim that level of objectivity, but I actually do think go into a field, go into their field and actually strive, you know, to be as, you know, objective as possible in their observations, in their recording of the lives of the people and the places that they're observing, right? And for them to, and and I think that they do come to conclusions that are at some level objective. If that person then decides to say, well, based on my conclusions, here's my normative, here's my normative view on what should be done about problem X, I actually don't see anything wrong with that. Me either. I, I, I mean, I totally think like, like I said, I, I, I distinguish between the expertise and then the implications drawn from the expertise. I'd like to see as much as possible people um, kind of be self-conscious about it and recognize when they're wearing one hat versus wearing the other. Um, but, you know, your expertise can inform your, uh, your policy implications or whatever. Do you think that there are working sociologists who think that uh, objective knowledge is achievable or that they're truly objective? Yeah. Really? I do. I actually think that, uh, you know, Joe, you had mentioned that it's only in sort of the strive of objectivity that we can sort of lead to new findings and better science. But it's also in these very conversations of what is objectivity being critical, breaking it down, sort of figuring out what our biases are. Um and I don't know, I just think that some of this is semantics, like mm-hmm. what is objective, what is not like is objective, is something that calls itself not objective, rigorous, is it unbiased, you know, can we trust all the other safeguards we have, like peer review, quality graduate training? Um, uh. <laughs> no, but is some of this, are we tripping up over words and is it was, is the a- incoming ASA president also just telling us, look, we have to open up this conversation, not use it as a shield, not use it as the end all be all, because historically there are a lot of problems with it. That's the way I read it. Well, I would think in terms of my problem with this is that when you hear this type of Jack Daniels epistemology, which I'm going to call it here forward, <laughs> of, uh, you know, making me want to drink. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in the uh, titular annex, I remember you always preferred a whiskey sour. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably you got probably it. with some god awful well drink. Not, you know. <laughs> anyway, because so, it was like two dollars, so I don't think they were using. <laughs> so, um, you know, in this kind of Jack Daniels epistemology, uh, there's this idea of like, oh well, objectivity is unobtainable, and the people who are objective are really reflecting a point, and it's like, let's just go whole hog with adopting um, a particular point of view and it and you know there's this assumption that from the people that you often hear this from that essentially says let's have a um, an explicit orientation towards a emancipatory agenda 
like let's have these strong uh, ideas about essentially attacking inequality um, and uh, adopt that viewpoint. And that is a viewpoint itself. Now, people who do that will sometimes recognize it's a viewpoint, but there's a little bit of a problem there in that it, there's such intense hegemony from that viewpoint that people can't see the extent to which it uh, provides limits on the viewpoint of the discipline. And I think it does so in two ways. Um, one way is that it diminishes the credibility of the mm-hmm. discipline. Let's say for the sake of argument that um, if you ask God his opinion, so you have this totally omniscient viewpoint, um, God says, yeah, you know, everything Jeremy Corbyn says is you know, a- absolutely right, right? I mean, he's the closest thing to me on earth. And so if you want that, let's, so, so let's say for the sake of argument that like um, Romero is totally right on the merits, right? She has the right viewpoint on everything. It's so far off from the um, the viewpoints of the ordinary person that it diminishes the credibility of sociologists. And if we organize ourselves, basically, I feel like the ASA wants to make itself into the least effective pack in history. <laughs> um, the second thing. What are you talking about? I mean, well, I don't know. It depends, you know, whose point of view you're, you're talking about, like credibility in terms of. I'm saying credibility with. Americans in general, right? I mean, so maybe if you basically turn um, sociology into salon.com with regressions, um, you know, that's going <laughs> to like make us incredibly appealing to 10% of the population, right? And maybe it's 10% of the population who we especially sympathize with or we think are especially deserving people or really need, but it's going to make us incredibly appealing to them. But, you know, the other 90% of the population is going to say, you know, you're out in la la land. And you're just not credible because you're so far off. And I think that has a certain amount of value, even if we assume for sake of argument that the view from Salon.com is the correct view. Now, there's another sense in which I think it would be extremely um, unusual in like a probability sense if anyone's viewpoint happened to be right all the time. And I don't mean your viewpoint, my viewpoint, Romero's viewpoint. If anybody's viewpoint happened to be correct all the time, that would be odd. And so in that sense, I think it's a problem when you not only have a uh, a flight from the pursuit of objectivity, but you also have um, intense ideological hegemony, it ends up pushing you away from being open to things where occasionally people are right. The example I always go to is it took like 30 years between the uh, Moynihan report and McClanahan and Sandifer before sociology kind of was dragged kicking and screaming into the... Uh, the finding that actually dads help kids. And that is a viewpoint that would have been, I, and I, I just have to believe that that's because of the uh, composition of the discipline. And that if we had more uh, of an even distribution of the discipline, now I'm not in favor of any kind of active measure to promote that, but I'm just saying thought experiment, if we imagine a less uh, ideologically hegemony uh, type question, uh, type um, issue, then uh, the discipline would have been more open to that in what turns out to look to have been the facts. Well, I hear you, Gabe, but I actually, I don't know how I feel about that example that you give. I actually think the Moynihan report uh, didn't so much make people shy away from saying dads are good. I think what it did was it made people shy away from saying black families are pathological. And so they were like, eee, 
you know, let's be very careful how we tread on how we discuss family structure and African Americans. And yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think that did actually cause people to back off. Right. And, you know, and that's, you know, that's on us. That's on our discipline. Right. But, you know, just, just calling you on that point. But I think it's great because it proves her point in sort of inserting the objectivity issue at the very first, at the part of her, at the top of her candidate statement, at the very least, she sparked this really amazing conversation mm-hmm. about what the future of the discipline is in these sort of new changing times. And I think, you know, at the very least, we should sort of reflect on that and the purpose of that. I know. Uh, you know, uh, for me, I, I, I find it worrisome, though. Like, uh, the idea, I understand that we can be scholar activists, but my, my worry is that when you have a major figure who is encouraging scholar activism, uh, it might induce people or it might validate the idea that we should uh, begin with an agenda and then find the empirics that justify our agenda. And I think it's not a great path for young. That's your perception. I mean, I think we've spoken most about sort of the objectivity part. The other part on the scholar activism, I mean, what, you know, that's your perception of what she's saying. But another interpretation is basically she's asking, what are we doing with our findings? How are we getting it out there? How are we building our careers on basically documenting a lot of us do, um, you know, social inequality, social suffering, and when, you know, what are we doing with the public aspect of it? And she's not the first one to have made sort of that argument, I guess, perhaps one of uh, the first ones to do so most recently was uh, Michael Burroway with his whole public sociology campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, and the other thing I'd add there is, like, I think another way to read this is, you know, sociology, stop, you know, looking down your nose at scholar activists, right? Um, You know, the work that scholar activists are doing are, you know, that work is just as important as the work that those of us who are, you know, toiling, you know, in R, right? So... But what if your um, a priori views, what if your a priori views are wrong in some factual sense? And we as a... Like, uh, we're all probably thinking about different topics. For me, I'm thinking about economic policy. And mm-hmm. what if the discipline comes with a priori views that, for example... Uh, anything capitalism is going to be damaging to regular people or that for a while globalization is a source of evil. And uh, and and we, we push an agenda uh, with a priori views and maybe not, you know, instead of uh, really trying to ask ourselves what pays off and what doesn't. And, and, and I, I don't know if we're doing a society a benefit if we if we uh if we uh you know if we stick with uh, a position from the beginning and we encourage people to do that and i also don't know who's going to be the arbiter of facts like if so- that's why we're a scientific community i don't think there's one person with an a priori view that sort of, i mean on their own personal time but we we're conversation discipline we write things people sort of look at our data again we've got peer review we're no one's doing this sort of stuff. it's it's not monolithic it's a community of individual people that are coming in with their own training with sort of, you know, you know, their participation in the peer review process. Too. And I also believe that, you know, any scholar activist worth his or her salt is actually like, you know, their findings, right? Their research and the research of others 
actually helps to drive their activism, you know? So thinking that the way that it works is that, you know, a scholar activist comes, you know, comes at this with an idea that they just have about how the world should work, right? And then formulates a research agenda so that it gives them that answer and then goes out and tries to, like, enact that in the world. I mean, that would actually be, like... Uh, I, I mean, th- that would be counterproductive, right? We want to produce knowledge. Scholar activists want to produce knowledge that can actually affect change. And they want that knowledge, therefore, to be as good as possible so that they can then go out and try and enact change with that knowledge. What if? The- and it builds an accumulation of previous research. What if the... I mean, if what if the- one study... What if the change that they want is, for example, more deregulated uh, access to guns? Or what about if the change that they want is, uh, I don't know, something like uh, uh, something like that, a, a stock conservative position? Or, yeah, well, I'm so, sure there's more... – go ahead, Gabe. Yeah, I was just going to say this is a useful thought experiment, right, in that we're kind of assuming that the scholar activists at issue are going to be the kind of people we see at ASA um, who are saying, like, why aren't we talking more politically about the discipline? But it's like, you know, um, Chicago school-trained economists – are also can also be scholar activists in their own way. Completely. So yeah. I, you know, so it's kind of a useful thought experiment to say, do you feel the same way about that? Um, or uh, Mark Regnerus is a scholar activist. How do you feel about him? No. I, so here's my thing, right? Like I said, any good scholar activist is someone who's actually saying, you know, I'm trying to do the best research I can possibly do, right? To get at a social problem, I get to get at a social issue. And if this is what my findings tell me is actually going to be a really effective solution, then I'm going to go out there. And so, you know what, if you're a scholar who did the best, highest quality research you could possibly do, and your finding actually went out and like came out that actually we need more guns, right? Um, I can't, I can't hate on you for that. But how would you measure quality of scholarship without reference to objectively true or close to objective truth? Yeah. And keep in mind that people have done experiments where they found that if you show people um, findings that they basically find convenient and then you find them and then you randomize it and you show them a similar finding that they find inconvenient they will attack things like the sample size that are true in both cases right so people tend to be very nitpicky even tendentious about stuff that they find uh ideologically inconvenient and uh totally credulous about stuff that they find convenient yeah my whole thing is that you know None of us agree on anything, right? <laughs> None of us agree on anything, right? Right, and that's part of what peer review is for. I mean, I don't know how I feel about peer review. Well, that could be another <laughs> another episode, another, another episode, yeah, another episode, right? But you know, as Christina said, this is part of a conversation, right? This is definitely part of a conversation, and we can pick apart one another's arguments. We can pick apart, you know our methods, we can, you know, we can talk about our data, right? But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you make a solid argument, right, for your approach, for your methods, for the data that you're using, for your interpretation, if you can do that, um, I and and you can do that convincingly, I can't hate on you if you then take those findings and say, and I'm going to take those findings and try to make the world a better place with them. 
Gabe. So for my banter item, I wanted to go back to what I hope is a running theme on this podcast, and we can just bring it back every week in one way or another. And um, I saw an article in NPR on Uyghurs. <laughs> and in particular, it was saying that, um, you know, last week we were talking about problems Uyghurs have in China and how the Chinese will kind of kick them for no particular reason uh, with things like making them keep the restaurants open during Ramadan and that sort of business. But um, this article was saying that um, Uyghurs have actually been very successful as models and actors in China because they look white. And there's demand in um, uh, China for models and actors who look white. I mean, obviously, there's a demand in that if you're, uh, you have characters who are supposed to be European or white Americans, it helps to have um, people who look white. And you, know, you can do this more easily if they're Chinese people and speak Mandarin. So you don't need the interpreter on the set, and you don't need to recruit them and get a special visa or something like that. And then also it was saying that there's just, uh, you know, Western-oriented beauty standards within China, and that, you know, there's a certain admiration for people with double-fold eyelids and that sort of thing. Um, so I just thought this was uh, really interesting, and, uh, you know, it was kind of a good hook for, we can talk a little bit about that, but I also thought it was a good hook for just kind of the uh, the broad history of uh, the Uyghur people who, I feel like a total hipster here, because I've been into Uyghur <laughs> since they used to be called Tokarians. Uh, <laughs> where, <laughs> where, uh, uh, you know, I, I read, when I was in college, I read this book called Mummies of a Room Key that was about um, some extraordinarily well-preserved mummies uh, from, uh, you know, basically they were the ancestors of Uyghurs. And, uh, it was saying, and, you know, you, you dig up these ancient mummies, and they had red hair, and their art indicates that they had blue eyes, and, um, you know, they, they generally had European-type features, and a little bit later, there's writing from this region that's in an Indo-European language, um, although around the year 1000, um, they went from an Indo-European language to, oh, also they had plaid textiles, which is kind of interesting, hmm. and that, um, you, you know, you obviously have plaid textiles in uh, Europe, including in like ancient uh, Europe. There's uh, some uh, plaid that's been preserved in an Austrian salt mine that dates back to like the Roman era. Anyway, um, so it's kind of... so. A, I don't think I was reading that stuff in college. <laughs> <laughs> it's, very, it's a very Gabriel thing. I saw an article about it in the New York Times. It was like a, a, a photo spread, and uh, it had uh, it, it was kind of reviewing the book, and then I went and got the book. It was really interesting. And it was also, it, the, so around 1000, they went from speaking an Indo-European language to speaking a Turkic language and uh, converting from uh, Buddhism to Islam. But uh, anyway, I just thought it was really interesting, and then what it says about you know race and how race was socially constructed and do we understand... These people who, you know, are in Asia geographically and went from speaking a, um, an Indo-European language to a Turkic language, and now they speak Mandarin. Um, and in some sense, you know, uh, phenotypically, they look white, but they were, I, but culturally, they're Central Asian Muslims, and, um, and they and they're a pretty good fit for the pots not people model, right? The idea that you don't necessarily have migrations, but you do have um, people adopting the cultures of their neighbors. Um, in this case, they're adopting essentially Mongol culture uh, with a Turkic language and that sort of thing. Um, 
uh, and then, you know, so you have these transitions uh, for the same people. They've been there for thousands and thousands of years, but their culture has changed dramatically over those periods. It's, it's, it's interesting because what you have, you're, you're, you seem to be describing uh, an ethnic group without sort of an underlying constant. Like, uh, uh, so what makes Uyghurs Uyghurs if it's not sort of through history, if it's not language and if it's not religion? Well, like, Uyghur is a modern term. Right. Um, So, I mean, the the language that um, archaeologists uh, have for them in the ancient period is Tocharian, which is I'm not sure where they got that term from, but we do have some preserved writing from them. So it looks like these people have lived there ever since the Indo-Europeans spread out from, uh, you know, the South Caucasus. But um, how do they know it's the same people? uh, Well, first of all, the mummies look just like the people who live there now. And, oh, um, they must look horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, the mummies are really well preserved. <laughs> but, uh, and and they, there's some preserved art that looks just like the people who live there now. And mm. I think they've done genetic testing. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, I just think it's interesting that, you know, in the one moment you can you know, denigrate people and, um, and, and give them second class status while at the next moment you're like, you know what, we really want you to be in our movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what, right. I mean, it sounds familiar. Are they like the bad guys in the movies or are they, you know, the romantic leads? Like what are the Uyghurs? Well, like? that's interesting. Right. So, so first of all, it, it seems like from the article, so I've read a total of 600 words on this, right? But um, <laughs> it sounds like they're they're appearing as fashion models, especially because some of them don't look, they, they look kind of halfway between um, Asian and European, right? They, they have some uh, East Asian ancestry and some Indo-European ancestry. Um, and, and so that kind of plays into this beauty standard that you see in some parts of Asia that also occurs with things like um, cosmetic surgery to get a double-fold eyelid of the aspiration to adopt certain aspects of a white appearance. So that would seem to be kind of an aspirational thing. When they appear as actors, my understanding is that they're not playing Uyghur characters, they're playing white American or white European characters. Mm. And I don't know whether uh, white American or white European characters are good guys or bad guys in Chinese movies. I'd imagine a fair number of times they're bad guys. Oh, and then also one other thing is interesting is it's quoting a Uyghur model, and she says that when she visits Europe, people refuse to believe that she's Chinese, and they think that her passport is forged. I would have actually thought they were playing the romantic leads or the good guys and sort of, you know, with the globalization of media and just the sort of sense that uh, whiteness is linked to beauty and, uh, you know. International love story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> understandings of race and racial difference, right? Yeah. <laughs> that are above beyond national boundaries. Yeah, that doesn't sound like the trend right now, does it? No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and now we'll move to Christina Mora. Christina is a sociologist from the University of California at Berkeley, and we're very happy to have her. Thank you for joining us, Christina. Thanks for having me. It must be a uh, a very interesting time to to be a uh, an expert on uh, on ethnicity in the era of Trump. <laughs> so tell tell us what have you been uh, what have you been seeing since Trump took office? What's been grabbing your attention? Oh, what's oh, very many things. I think, um, gosh, several questions. Um, 
I think first and for, first and uh, I think first my you know the biggest issue that has been sort of I've been thinking about as a scholar, but as an individual uh, in general is just sort of the question of immigration, the whole sort of dynamics of immigration and race politics and how sort of it was used in an unprecedented way uh, during his campaign and how it's sort of at the forefront even of his presidency. Um, issues much more about who belongs, who doesn't belong, uh, who are the bad guys uh, in the nation. Uh, you know, he just broke all the rules about sort of PC race, you know, racial politics. Uh, and I think that has uh, struck me a lot, not just for sort of campaign presidential rhetoric, but also the way it actually trickles down to real policies. So, uh, you know, his talkings about DACA and whether to put it on the chopping block or not can't be separated from his arguments about uh, about sort of Mexico bringing in its criminals and rapists and things of the sort. So uh, in many ways, it's been really interesting mainly depressing, uh, and mainly as a, you know, professor on campus at the University of California, also a call to action in many ways and thinking about the ways the University of California can protect all of its students, uh, regardless of documentation status. Yeah, the politics have been very hot at Berkeley, haven't they, in the past few months? Oh my God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Can you give us a little rundown, just so... I was, uh, you know, born and raised in LA, and sometimes I say that I, I left, uh, I left Pacoima because I wanted to stop hearing the helicopters and all <laughs> last week, helicopters above campus all last week uh, with all of uh, the free speech week uh, events uh, and threats of the Milo Yiannopoulos and sort of Steve Bannon and Coulter types coming to campus, and so there. A lot of activism on both sides. Who's bringing them in? Where, where's uh, all of this, uh, the organizational energy for these outside speakers coming from on, on Berkeley campus? So uh, there's a group called the Berkeley Free Patriots, I want to say, but it's very unclear who is in this group. Uh, some people would argue that they're basically only a group of like five students. Other argue that it's, a you know, that it might have a larger base if only people were... Uh, free to express more conservative views, I guess, on the Berkeley campus. Uh, But uh, they're bringing, they're proposing them as speakers and it just so happened, or I don't think not just so happened, uh, that uh, the chancellor designated this year, the year of free speech, right? So there are many other things that this year could have been designated. It could have been designated the year of social justice or various other but it became the year of free speech. And so along with that was a list of activities and speakers uh, that would come in and the Berkeley Free Patriots seized on this as an opportunity to bring, uh, try to bring some of these big name people. But of course, the biggest name people didn't come. And weren't even planning to come. Like uh, there was a quote, somebody, a journalist reached uh, Charles Murray and uh, he just said, I've never heard of this and I wouldn't go even if I did know about it because I hate Milo. Uh, but in terms of like where does this come from, my understanding is that it's mostly a troll operation from the Mercers, who um, who are the are, Mercers? Well, it's kind of what you know. Um, it's they're people who God put on Earth to make you realize how much you should have appreciated the Cokes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where you know 
they, they the, the Mercers are um, it's a father and daughter uh, billionaire, mm. and uh, they they basically were the peop- the billionaires who so like the Cokes wanted to push the Republican Party in a more libertarian direction, and mm. the the Mercers want to push it in a more Trumpist direction, and they were a big part mm. of the reason for uh, unifying the Republican Party behind Trump. And for instance, they are the reason that uh, Ted Cruz had to kind of suck it up and end up endorsing Trump and completely throw away whatever vestiges of dignity he had left. Well, I will say that the politics were about the people coming around, but it was also about sort of, I don't know, uh, I, I have really seen the campus take a different turn in, since the Trump election in terms of who is coming in on campus. Like I have never seen uh, flyers for white supremacist groups uh, since I've been here, and I've seen now a few. Really? Um, just last week, there, or two weeks ago, um, right after the Yiannopoulos talk was canceled. Oh, no, last week. Um, there were posters on campus, wanted posters with the pictures of Berkeley faculty. Really? Saying they supported terrorism. And, yeah. So, I mean, it was like targeting Judith Butler, a lot of our humani- humanities professors. Um, sort of just... It, was a chilling effect. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but, you know, this is happening at Michigan as well. I mean, someone sent me um, sent me copies of the flyers, right? So, you know, it's U of M, black enrollment, 5%. Average black IQ equals 85. Average white IQ equals 100. Do the math. Nature is racist, not the system. That's just one of them. And, you know, which I think is so shocking. Um, And also also at Berkeley, considering that, you know, your states don't allow the use of affirmative action in your admissions processes in your state universities. And yet, you know, this is the argument that, you know, that these groups, you know, are making like at the bottom, there's like, you know, altright.com, the right stuff dot biz, right? So. Christina, can you tell us for those of us who aren't plugged into the Hispanic community or, uh, Spanish-speaking media. How is all of this being processed uh, by uh, the Hispanic community in America, from what you gather in the mass media? Campus politics? Or just the entire, this whole Trumpism and the right wing and the backlash? Oh, I think, uh, so, you know, I have a lot of problems with uh, Latino media in terms of the way it's reporting on a range of issues. But to its to its credit, historically, it has been a mainstay for reporting on up-to-date issues about uh, immigration reform and immigration reform politics. And so uh, when the rest of the media is distracted by whatever Trump is tweeting about lunch or whatever it's out there, they're doggedly persistent on, you know, what is what is happening in immigration uh, reform politics, uh, what are states doing? Uh, where different raids are happening, things of the sort. So they've been vigilant, and I think they're much more vigilant now. Um, they're when the, you know, and it's not just on that too. They're consistently now covering what is actually happening in Puerto Rico. You know, is aid coming in? Where is it going? Much, you know, in much more comprehensive manner than any other uh, mainstream media outlet uh, around. You have a new project in the works, I understand, about uh, immigration in the Trump era. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the direction that your work is taking? Yes, I've got uh, two projects. Uh, So the one that's more particular to this one is basically just uh, racial politics in working class neighborhoods, how everyday Americans are thinking about race uh, in everyday lives, both at the local level and how they're understanding what's going on in national politics. So that's an incredibly new project that stemmed just from a a huge frustration about uh, not having or not seeing in the literature really a really good, effective, uh, qualitative approach to what mainly political scientists have been studying, uh, which is uh, how do people understand racial politics? So I think sociologists have often understood how we understand racial boundaries, um, and perhaps they connect this sometimes to broader questions about the fate of the nation or the direction of the administration, but they haven't centralized the idea of politics. And so this is my first foray into trying to bring the apparatus of the qualitative sociologist into uh, the discussion on race and politics. So I think in political sciences where we have these more overt discussions about what people are thinking about in terms of the fate of the nation, the effectiveness of their uh, elected officials, about what uh, policies are important, I think that's where they centralize those discussions, but they don't have a good understanding really about the way people are thinking about racial boundaries, who's in their group, who's outside of their group. and how this influences the way that they are thinking about uh, these issues about politics and where the country should be going. So this is a new project that tries to bring in, I think, the best of qualitative sociological research and these understandings of racial boundaries to the central question of how do people make sense of politics. Um, But I don't think this is just sort of uh, a lack of our understanding about racial politics uh, and the working class in America. I think... uh, Generally, more broadly, we can have this discussion about how the working class is thinking about uh, race, you know, the connection between race and politics in sort of Western Europe as well and in other places. Well, what's your view on that? On Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the political world was taken aback with the rise of uh, these nationalist uh, movements, right, with Brexit, with uh, the rise of nationalist parties in other places, the popularity of, uh, you know, Le Pen in France and, and everywhere else, right? And I think this is a good time to reassess this question, not just, uh, you know, with the tools that we have, such as survey research, the way we've done it, um, but I think with really going into, you know, with a battery of sort of ethnographic uh, observations and also sort of um, qualitative research methods to really asking how are people thinking about who belongs, who doesn't belong, what are the borders of the nation, uh, and how this is uh, coinciding with their just basic views on, you know, economic policy or immigration policy uh, in general. So, so that's, a, that's a useful perspective, right, to see it as part of a worldwide trend towards populism, um, where, yeah. you know, you see this similar issue of a shift towards an increasing popularity of the populist right, taking um, popularity away from the far left, the center left, and the more neoliberal right. Um, and, you know, and you can kind of think about why that is. I mean, I'd be interested in your opinions, but what I see is... It's going to be some combination 
of a backlash to global integration and an increase in migration in many countries. Um, you see an increase in migration and, you know, over the last uh, 20 years and over the last 50 years in the United States, you've also seen that in the European Union, including internal migration from within the European Union and the recent migrant crisis having stemming from, uh, you know, the collapse of Libya and the Syrian civil war and all that sort of thing. And then on top of that, you also have, it's not just a backlash to migration, it's also a backlash to neoliberalism writ large and the idea of uh, free market policies. Uh, so, you know, all those things are creating this backlash. And, I, you know, one way to interpret it would be that it, it reflects kind of a democracy gap and that these policies, which, you know, maybe everybody on this podcast likes them, maybe we like some of them, not others, but they were definitely never popular with the median voter. Don't you, don't you find it interesting? It's almost like neoliberalism and, and what we talk about as liberalism are somehow coalescing. And I, I've heard arguments that the main fissure in politics is going to be nativism versus some type of globalism. And uh, I, f- I find it interesting to see that, you know, the people who are interested in globalization are, are very much in line with the those who are in support of, you know, multiculturalism on the left, for example. Still, in the rise of sort of nativism and all of these insecurities, I think one of the biggest things is people are just concerned about everyday living, right? Everyday economics, you know. Still, even among, for example, in the United States, even among Latinos, the number one issue that's important to them is the fate of the economy, more so than immigration. And so I think everyday people are still just way more interested in, are they going to be able to sort of provide for their families and things of the sort? It's because this isn't, you know, this isn't solvable because of politics at hand, that nativism becomes much more readily accessible as a form of politics that they can latch onto, right? And so, uh, you know, it becomes opposed just very simply as a nativism versus global open borders argument to the everyday person, right? Do you think it's going to disappear if times were to get better? Like that the the nativism is sort of a reaction and that the commitment, the ideological commitment to nativism, I, I'm getting from you, you think it's not particularly high it's just that people are very concerned with their personal lives and they're they're grasping for something and nativism is just one perceived life jacket yeah i mean i'm also so a lot of my research also looks at spain and spain is really interesting to me right now what's going on (laughs) i mean i know it's in the news with all this sort of catalan independence stuff but it's been interesting for a while So if you look at Spain compared to the rest of Western Europe, there's a a couple of things that are really interesting. One, it's got one of the lowest rates of nationalism. So people don't really, you know, more people feel really strongly about being German than Spaniards think really strongly about being Spanish. A lower rate of nationalism. One of the only countries that really doesn't have an organized, independently uh, motivated anti-immigration party or nativist party. So lots of other Western European countries have it. Um, Spain doesn't. doesn't mean there isn't sort of everyday anti-immigrant sentiment. It just means it hasn't been institutionalized into a party. Um, but yet Spain also still has record levels of high unemployment. It has uh, all of these uh, other, it's still trying to recover from the recession. It's got all of these sort of economic markers you would think would lead it towards this uh, 
nativist form of politics, but it actually doesn't. That's the only one that I've been thinking about as, as this real puzzle. Well, what do you think it is? You think it's sort of a legacy of, uh, you know, the Franco years or? I think it's a combination of things, but it's worth thinking about, right? What is this outlier doing when everyone else is moving towards this sort of populist to the right politics? Spain is still still in the background. And I think a a couple of things. One is um, what is actually, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, many Spaniards themselves are tied to immigration, right? So if you look at Spain, the population of Spain in the 1970s, about a quarter of Spaniards were out living in other places, mainly in Latin America, but also in other places in Western Europe. So lots of Spanish families have ties to have the experience of immigration. I think second, um, you know, the fact that national identity is low is because regional identities are so high uh-huh. as here, uh, you know, as we see with the Catalan issue and as we see with the Basque issue, I mean, Spain since democracy in the late 70s has really tried to experiment with this uh, much more multicultural identity in which sort of various different languages and histories are folded into this umbrella of uh, this broader Spanish identity. So, you know, even in places where the language is Spanish, where it's not Catalan or something else that's distinct, like in Andalusia, people have a much stronger Andalusia identity than they have as a, a Spanish identity. And I think third, um, you know, the rise of immigration there, uh, that's really a response to, uh, you know, Spanish demographics. I mean, Spaniards are aging and they're not having kids. So, uh Since about the 1990s, it's been Latin Americans uh, that have really come into the country to take care of things in, you know, they're entering domestic work, they're construction workers, things of the sort. And so I think, and, you know, uh, places like Catalonia, for example, have really tried to embrace immigration uh, as a future, given this sort of demographic crisis. Uh, you see, for example, Catalan parties, uh, those for independence and those against uh, independence, um, trying really hard to mobilize the Latino vote on either side, sort of with this idea that you are, you know, those for independence try to mobilize the Latino Catalan population as you are Latino uh, Catalanes, or Catalonia is a history of immigrants that have always come in. We've always had flows of people. So it's this new form of Catalan identity based on multiculturalism and sort of some narrative of embracing immigration. So just think it's fascinating to also think of Spain as um, bucking the trend. Do you think that it has something to do with uh, a shared common heritage? Like, for example, I don't sense that Americans are very unhappy about Canadian immigration, even though there's quite a few of us here. <laughs> Uh, how, how do the how do the Spaniards treat North African immigration, for example? But Canadian go home. <laughs> yeah, so if you look, so we're just looking at uh, Catalonia. I mean, I, just it's a really particular time. The fact that it's just really right in the middle of this moment of you know where the question of Catalan independence is much more heightened than it has been for a long time 
And so because of this, uh, I think parties on both ends, those for independence and those for not, and, you know, it's, it's not the left and the right because there are, you know, conservative, uh, you know, and liberal parties on both sides of, of the issue. Um, they just really are, you know, the, the independence vote is so tight that they really see just any vote. So any immigrant vote as a difference maker. So whether that be the Latino immigrant vote, um, which has a fast track to citizenship, so Latinos can be voters much quicker than African immigrants, for example. Uh, but they're seeing just any amount of votes that are that can be received uh, uh, are important for them in this uh, decisive vote. So um, a second ago, Christina was saying that you know there's you don't have the regional parties taking a distinctive um, perspective on immigration, and my understanding is that that's not how it works in some other countries where you have kind of a regional movement. That very often the the regional movements tend to resist immigrants because they see the, the immigrants as more likely to caucus with the ethnic majority, especially linguistically, right? So, some, Joe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the um, Quebecois parties tend not to be terribly fond of immigration, except for Francophone immigration. So, so like, they wouldn't want um, Chinese people who speak English to move to Montreal but they'd be totally happy with Haitians or something. I'm not an expert, but my naive impression is yes. Yeah, no, I, I think what's different here, so that is that is true, but I think what's different here is um, here's where both sides really manipulate history and really manipulate this idea of heritage, ethnic or racial heritage, whatever uh, you want to call it. So on the independent side, you will often hear, so I've got a piece in the Du Bois Review that's coming out uh, soon, in which I talk about some of the narratives that uh, political parties on both sides of Catalonia are using. And on the pro-independent side, what you often hear is, you know, it was the Spaniards that colonized uh, uh, the Americas. It was, they were the ones that did the atrocities. We're the Catalans. We're, we're different. You know, come join us. Be Latino Catalanes. Be part of this new nation, this future, this multicultural mix of people that sees it as different. Whereas uh, on the, you know, and you, you've got, you've got uh, parties that range the ideological spectrum on both sides. But if you, uh, on the on the side that's uh, for staying within Spain, the anti-independent side, you often have a narrative of, you know, you came to migrate to the motherland, you came to migrate to your Spanish heritage, you know, you know, stick with us, you know, stick to coming to a place in which uh, that supports your culture, that values your culture, that values the ideas, the ideals of Catholicism, and that values really the speaking of the Spanish language. The idea of language is so important here. And so you have this spinning, spinning this story about history and ethnicity. I mean, some of the pro-independence parties have even put out their own history books in which they try to separate the Spanish role in the conquest from the Catalan role in the conquest. And now, a word from Editor Bain. Ah, yes. I was wondering what would break first, your spirit or your model specification?
You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Christina Mora of UC Berkeley. Her most recent book is Making Hispanics, How Activists, Bureaucrats, and Media Constructed New Americans. It was published by the University of Chicago Press. We are on the web, theannexpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at SochAnnex. And on Facebook, we are The Annex Sociology Podcast. You can follow us on Google Play and iTunes. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson, who had to run out early, and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye.